What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. Gianni and I are lucky today to be doing this one from sunny Miami. Don't be mad. We were in New York when it was going down. Um, Gianni, we got our friends on today. Yes, sir. What's up? What's up, Rich? Um, Man, I'll see you after this pod as well, my friend. (laughs) Uh, We are in the same house, different rooms doing this podcast. But today we have two friends of mine who I also work with and who I'm also excited to talk to, who have just broken an incredibly big story in the sports world, and who have been doing incredible things for the last few years. So please welcome the founders of Overtime Sports, I'll call it, and then you guys correct it, uh, Zach Wiener and Dan Porter. What's up, guys? How are you? Uh, We're doing great, man. Very excited to be on... uh the podcast and to be on with uh folks who have supported us since the beginning of our journey yeah i, I i'm pumped to be here thanks for having us rich and gianni uh and as you know we're, we're, we're big fans of the boardroom and we were lucky enough to, to be on on the tv show uh and i think the podcast is going to be even better thank you bro um so this is the second time we've had two people on we had uh kd and steve stout on earlier and that one definitely went off script, like all the way off script from the beginning. But, you know, feel free, guys, to have an open conversation similar to like how we started the boardroom. So do me a favor. I know you both very well. Um, and as I said, I introduce you guys as overtime sports. And what is the oh, I, I, it's crazy. I don't even know what is the overarching like enterprise name of everything. So the legal name is Overtime Sports Inc., Okay. Uh, you want to sue us, but don't sue us. Uh, otherwise, sue. we're just known as Overtime, a.k.a. shout out to Overtime. All right. Well, Overtime Sports, a.k.a. shout out to Overtime. But tell me, let's start with you, Dan, because you're older. Um, tell me just the journey. Give me two minutes on the journey of Dan Porter that got you to everything before Overtime. Yeah, it really starts when I was born during the Great Depression. Wow. <laughs> you know what? That's why I said two minutes. Um, so my, my, my journey, I kind of think about it in thirds. Uh, weirdly, the first third of my career, I spent in education. I was a public school teacher in Brooklyn. I was one of the founders or on the founding team of the Teach for America program and eventually the president of that um, and worked on starting schools that we know as charter schools and stuff like that. Kind of second, third, took a total right turn and ended up working in the startup world, started my first company with my college roommate called TicketWeb, first sold the first concert tickets on the internet, and eventually sold that to Ticketmaster. Uh, in between, I worked for Richard Branson and then uh, started uh, a mobile games company called OMG Pop, made a game called Draw Something that was downloaded hundreds of millions of times. I think somebody once told me in 2012, it was on nine out of every 10 iPhones, uh, and sold that company Uh, And then kind of entered the third part of my career where I ended up through introductions connecting with Ari Emanuel and working for Endeavor, WME, running their digital. And that's really kind of what led to overtime. I kind of took everything I knew. I built the digital talent division at what we know is the rise of the influencer. Like I'm reading about all oh, creator culture and all of this stuff. But, you know, in 2013, we were building the fundamental kind of groundwork for that, different ways to monetize, you know, 
selling apparel, touring, all these other things like that. Uh, and then WME bought IMG, which was the largest kind of sports media rights seller in the world. And I got very involved on the sports side and, and ran digital there. And through that whole process, you know, six or seven years ago, kind of kept hearing like, you know, this next generation of sports fans are not watching TV, they're not watching live games, things that that, that I think if you follow sports and media now, you know, but at that time, it was kind of like that hidden knowledge, people didn't really understand the extent of that. I certainly didn't, because that wasn't my generation. And um, it became so loud to us inside and so many people outside didn't see kind of the transformational power of this generation and their viewing habits that Zach and I quit in 2016 and we're like, we're gonna build the next greatest sports platform, the biggest sports you know, network in the world and we're gonna take advantage of this knowledge that we have and we're gonna use technology and brand and community and all of these things that you know we, we saw at the right time because we saw that opportunity and that's really kind of my journey and the genesis of, of that. By the way, Zach, before you go, that was well done, bro. That was about a good two minutes. And if anybody's listening, if anybody's listening, to whoever is listening, um, if you do want to know about any of those individual steps, because part of these conversations at times is to kind of dissect the journey a bit, I'm going to tell them that they all have to Google you because we're going to take that two minutes and we're going to focus on overtime. But Zach, tell me, obviously you're a bit younger, but tell me a little bit about how you got to this. And then why don't you from there kick off how you met Dan a bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so since this is a podcast, people might not be able to see, but uh, I'm about half Dan's age, uh, which uh, I think makes for, for a really fun, fun partnership for us, um, but also means that my history is not as long as him. So I don't even know if I need to fill two minutes, uh, but I was born and raised on the Upper West Side, uh, Rich, I know you represent too, um, uh, and, and, and grew up in New York City. Uh, and then I went to Penn, and when I was there, uh, really had my first foray into sports, uh, running the sports radio department there. Uh, it's been fun. I talked to a lot of people in the sports industry, and they're like, oh, yeah, I got my, my start in sports, in, in, in sports radio, too, which is, which is always cool. So I started there. Then when I was in college, I started my first company called The Sports Quotient, uh, which was another digital sports media company that, uh, you know, a couple years in, I had over 200 kids uh, from different colleges writing about sports, doing podcasts, creating videos. What was super fun. Uh, and then when I graduated, I worked on Wall Street for about a year. Um, and then that's when I met Dan. Uh, and, and Dan was at Endeavor at the time. And, uh, you know, I remember the first night we met, uh, we actually met over email. I think Dan, you were in Costa Rica, if I remember correctly. And we sent like 100 emails back and forth in like the span of an hour. And it's still the type of thing that we do today. Um, and I was like, damn, this, this old guy knows what's up. And he was like, this young guy knows what's up. Um, and it, you know, we, 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 we came from, from different approaches and different backgrounds, but, uh, we had alignment on what the future of sports media could look like. And funny enough, uh, I remember my first day at Endeavor. I mean, I, I was young, I was whatever, 22, 23. I was actually still living at home with my parents. And I remember my mom goes order. Like I, I, I recognized that last name. I was like, yeah, mom, it's a common last name. And she's like, was, wasn't your college advisor? Wasn't his last name Porter? I was like, yeah, but mom, there are a million Porters and credit to her. She Googled and she finds a picture of Dan. And my college advisor, turns out that my college advisor was Dan's father, uh, totally randomly, R really, really crazy. Wow. And you know what, by the way, if, if no one sees the uh, video of this, Dan is a young, 
looking guy. Like you wouldn't be able to just tell over video. But the age gap is real, right? Like, so KD and I are uh, 12 years apart and we have completely different perspectives on certain things and some things we share, right? We're not that far apart. And, you know, we both grew up in the Northeast. So there's some things we relate to, some things so far apart. When you guys decided to partner and go on this journey, you know, what were both of your thoughts? Because you can't go on a journey to like what you said, Dan, build the biggest sports network in the world. And I believe that's how you said it because I know how you think without feeling like the person you're partnering with, you can go on this ride with. And you guys are so different. Uh, yeah. How, how, what is the age difference, Zach? 27 years? Yeah, I think 27. Yeah, I'm going to be 100 this year. Um, <laughs> we're going to throw a rager. I mean, COVID safe rate. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, look, the th here's the things. I, I knew how to build companies. I knew how to build a platform for people to operate around. I had raised a ton of money. But, you know, the question is, well, okay, so this guy who's obviously not Gen Z, you know, I'm Gen X, you know, how, how's he going to make me, he sees this opportunity, how's he going to make media for it? Um, and it was a perfect partnership because, you know, people always used to say, oh, well, you're, you're so old. Like, I'm like, I don't write the captions on the Instagram account, <laughs> you know, uh, so... So, and I knew, and like what Zach had done a really good job of, uh, which he undersold was he built like a whole network of college kids who wrote for his publication, like hundreds of them. And he had all these methods of like reaching out to fraternities or whatever. And I didn't even know a single person in college. So it was both the voice, but I also understood like it had to be organic and ground up. And so I knew what I knew, but like I knew what, what I didn't know. And then also I like to be, I'm a better bad cop and I'm always looking for the good cop. Or as, as sometimes my wife would say, if there's a bad cop, you're always better cop. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I think it was a good personality match. And um, I know what my lane is around building the company. And I knew what Zach brought from just being a sports fan of a different generation from essentially had, having built that distributed network. Because to fast forward a little bit, we understood that we wanted to use the iPhone, right? And I had made an iPhone game with hundreds of millions of downloads. So I got to work directly with Apple and Google. And I was very, like the power of the phone, we forget how transformational it was. I mean, there'd be no Uber or anything else, like if you didn't have GPS on your phone and everything. And so I, I just, just was really passionate about, we all knew what the kind of front end where you watch, but like the camera on the phone could do. But, you know, it was like, imagine if we could build this special software and we could have people filming people everywhere. But I had no idea how to find anybody to film or even who to film or anything else like that. Um, so I was really good. And then Zach, while not of NBA caliber, uh, played a lot of basketball and was really, you know, from New York and, and, and embedded in that way. So there were a lot of real complementary aspects and it, it didn't force me to go out and try to find college students. You know, it let me do the things that I knew how to do. And, and, and I think vice versa. Yeah. I mean, Zach, did you want to say anything on that? No, I, I mean, I, I would echo what Dan said. And, you know, obviously working with someone who, who's built and sold a bunch of companies before, like there's a level of experience that Dan brings. But 
you know, I think the, the, the other element there too, is like, you know, if you look at the population that works for overtime and we have 110 full-time employees and then a global network of thousands of, of creators, um, you know, it, it tends to be a, a young, uh, a pretty young crowd. And I think that it's really helpful for them to see sort of this dual partnership of someone that has a, a ton of experience and then someone who's a little younger and, you know, maybe talks a little more in their vernacular, et cetera. And I think that uh, from from a team building perspective, I think that's been one of the really fun parts. And speaking of like the fun part of it, because, you know, that moment where you decide that you want to do something together, it's clearly daunting. And I think the daunting part of it is what stops people, period. Like most people that don't have a way in or have an excuse for why they didn't have a way in, there's unique circumstances, but I know you guys share this with me in that like some things you just got to start doing and they're going to take incredible pivots along the way, but you got to just start doing it. But I watch other companies, right? And I know how we've built certain elements of what we do. And I got to watch within Rock Nation a bit as they formed parts of their company. And then I start thinking like, wow, was that always the plan? Or, you know, do, were they just going as they went? Um, and for everything, for Disney, for everyone. When you guys, though, just agreed to start this and said, all right, cool, we want to build the biggest sports network in the world. And even six years ago, the technology is nothing like it is now, right? So the, the, the ease and certain things that you can do now, you couldn't do then. But what was just the first step? Like, you know, what did you just start putting in place and how and why? And, you know, tell me, like, just tell me that whole process a bit, because I really didn't get to meet you guys, I think, till, you know, you had already had the seed. I, we invested early with you guys in the seed round, and it was a bit of, um, but you had a brand. You had a brand. You were already moving a bit. So talk to me through that, like, early stage. When you think about it, like, if you want to study startups, there's kind of, like, the vision, and then there's, like, the tactics. And the vision often doesn't change but the tactics can change. I mean, you think about my last company, you know, I sold it based on an iPhone game. When we launched our games company, the iPhone didn't even exist. So like there was no business plan I could have written for that. And I was thinking about, I mean, most people don't know this, but I remember when we were doing some of our very early pitches, we just started in New York, right? We started with iPhones, Zach's brother, had a bunch of high school friends, kind of went to Dykeman, went around, filmed some stuff with the iPhones. We're like, is this going to work? What's going to happen? Does anyone want to see it? Kind of discovered, you know, got clued in on the whole Jelly Fam thing. And so a lot of different parts were there, but it, it wasn't very big. I mean, we weren't even that big in New York. And I remember we went to a, a pitch meeting and our pitch was, first, we're going to get really big in New York and we're going to cover everyone. Then we're going to go to another city and we're going to cover everyone in that city. And then we're going to go to a third city. So it was like this rollout that was very understandable because that's how we saw the world. Now, ultimately, what happened was like Zion and LaMelo and that thing went out the window. That didn't work. And there wasn't really outdoor basketball in this city and the seasons didn't work there. It was a it was, you know, it turned out to be a cockamamie tactic, but it didn't really matter at the end because our job was to move as quickly through as many tactics as we could to get to that kind of end game. And second to that, you know, we'd go out and we'd say, look, we're going to give this camera, uh, you know, which is on the iPhone, this kind of special app 
to all these young people in high school and they're going to film all their friends and we're going to make a sports center for every high school. So like your high school is going to have a sports center and your high school is going to have a sports center. It's all going to be powered by overtime and we're going to get tons of free content. It's going to be amazing. And like our fourth ever employee was from West Chester and he's like, I'm going to get my high school on it. Um, and it turned out like that it just completely didn't work. Like it was impossible to deal with the schools, the principals. Honest, the biggest thing that I learned is most of the kids were like, I don't know why that video is on there. Like I didn't really do anything epic. And so you'd like do all this work to get like a hundred high schools and a thousand views at a high school. And then like Zion Williamson in 10th grade would throw down one dunk and you'd get a million times more views. And all you had to do was send one person with the phone to that. And we're like, this method is crazy, but this method is really good. And so it's like this constant iteration of tactics because you're going towards your goal, but you're just guessing at kind of what gets your goal. But in the way you discover all of these other types of things like that, and they all have their little bits of knowledge, like what people think is good to put on a video, what people don't think is good to put on a video. And you're watching and you look at our Instagram now, we have, I don't know, four and a half, five million followers on Instagram. And I remember every morning I wake up and I'd be like, one day we're going to break 10,000 views on a video. You know, I have a tweet that I made with no followers that has 10,000 views the other day, but it was like 10,000, we broke 10,000 views. We thought it was the greatest thing ever. And now if we don't get, you know, 500,000 views, but you just constantly innovate on that path. And I think when I try to reflect on why people I know haven't been successful, I think that sometimes they think that you need to stick with doing the same thing until it works. And like the world, and the world rewards persistence, but it rewards persistence with a higher goal, not persistence of trying to do this. It's like you're a pitcher and everybody's hitting a home run at you. You got to change it up. You can't just think you're going to throw a hundred more pitches. Like you need some new pitches. And so that that's kind of the difference in terms of, I think how we grew. Yeah. You said something about views because I struggle with this a little bit, right? Like as these digital media brands are built, there's kind of two metrics and I'm definitely not a data analytics guy. So when I say metrics, it's like my metrics, right? One is like, I can tell if a brand is growing. I can tell if a brand is being felt, at least in my orbit. And that's really all like at this point with, with social media and algorithms, I can really go off of like what they tell me my orbit is. So within my orbit, I can tell if a brand is growing. Then there is views, right? So views throughout time or audience, let's say, not views, let's say audience. Audience throughout time on these digital media networks originally were built by certain things. There's, you know, KPI and likes and then views as video came into um, form. But like, what is the real, like when I see the overtime investor updates and I see your numbers and articles that you guys do, you know, it's like billions of views a month. And I believe it, right? Because I know the level of platform you are. But what does it mean? What are you actually going for? Um, and like, what is the what is a substantial audience for a digital media company right now? I think um, you know we, we we you know we certainly use the word audience sometimes, but then the word we use even more is community um, because you know it, it's true. Like anyone can buy audience. Like you know anyone can go on Instagram or Facebook and and pay to, to target fans. Um, but. To, to me, like what we're trying to do is we're trying to increase the number of people that I walk down the street in an overtime shirt 
and some 21 year old goes, yo, shout out to overtime and throws up our O hand signal and feels like overtime, like they're a part of that. Like that's theirs. And, you know, obviously you want the, the, the entire funnel to continue to grow. And that's why followers matter and, and views matter. And luckily every single month those, those continue to grow. And I think it's the strength of our content and our brand. But I, I, I look at engagement. Like I want to see how much people are, are commenting and liking. And I want to see like, honestly, even anecdotes, like to, to, be, to, to, to hear stories every single day of someone saying like, yo, I, I mentioned I knew someone over time and, and a kid freaked out like they loved it that much. That type of stuff is really powerful. And I think that that's what differentiates us from a lot of brands that are out there right now. So you mentioned your example kind of in my mind, like was about like between the two, right? Like a lot of that was the brand analogy. And ultimately that's what's going to win, you know, at least in, in what your goal was, right? Like your vision was, it wasn't to add up views. It was for someone to run down the street and be like, holy shit, that's the guy from overtime. Oh, look, it's an overtime shirt. But what are advertisers looking for what are investors looking for because they can't always feel that right you can't always show them that on paper but when you're starting when you're going for your seed round right with Graykoff and 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 investors of that level then you go back to your a round and you're starting to explain to them like here's our audience growing and these are the sponsors that bought in and are sponsoring these social media channels and this website etc what are they looking for? What is the audience and the numbers and the metrics that it matters to them outside of just brand? Well, I'd, I'd say there's probably three things. Number one is they're looking for growth, right? And so it's just like when you buy a stock, it, it matters how much money they make, but you want to see that grow quarter over quarter over quarter. I'd say for us, like Zach said, we've always focused on engagement and engagement is roughly the ratio of likes, shares, and comments to the overall people who have seen it because it doesn't matter if you get a trillion views if nobody likes it or comments on it. It doesn't, so you want a metric that kind of consumes you know, other metrics. And then the last thing I'd say is that I think what made us different and maybe successful to some extent is that we who our audience segment was. So if you take other people in sports or other verticals, they might say like, hey, we're gonna launch a sports publication and it's gonna be the voice of the athlete and we're gonna get athletes to talk and, and whatever. And my question is, well, like, who's the audience? Like, is the audience just everybody? Like, how do you win at everybody? And, and I think when you can deliver a specific audience, even like you guys can say, our audience might not be a billion, but we reach all these influential people because of our network, then that's really valuable. And I think not, an, not enough people think about their content or what they're doing as a means to aggregating a very specific audience set. Instead, they're so focused on the content. And by the way, if our audience set woke up tomorrow and 75 million Gen Z people said, the only thing we care about in the world is ping pong, like we'd have to start covering ping pong. You know, we, we couldn't even call it table tennis. We'd have to call it ping pong. So, you know, <laughs> you're, you're geared towards that audience segment. And that's what keeps you honest and moving forward. And it, it's not like we're putting out something in the world and we don't know who's supposed to watch it or like it. You know, one of the things that I struggle with in this beginning phase and I'm starting to evolve from, and I feel like we're I'm in a, a digital media um, therapy session here with my uh, <laughs> my friends who are a bit more developed in, in that game. Um, 
is when they were like, how do I watch it? Or I watched it, you know? And it's like, what do you mean you watched it? How could you have watched the brand? I'm watched what we're building. But so to some degree, I think that's a gift and a curse. Cause like you go in the beginning, you spread this content out everywhere. You're building a brand. And then Gianni says, oh, yo, where can I watch over time? And you know, he knows, but where does somebody that does not know where to go if they are in the let's especially in the early stages when you were directing them right like because social media had such a major part the most major part in building your business it lives predominantly in the early days throughout all your social media properties and then you have these personalities that you've created that i honestly think you were one of the first to do which was people that were influential in their own right individually who represented the spirit and DNA of the brand, who just acted like themselves and incorporated their brand in what they did and loved basketball, right? Like at the end of the day, that's what they had to do. And you created these people, you didn't create these people, you created these accounts, Overtime Larry, Overtime Chloe, Overtime Megan, um, and I'm sure there's more. And then they went and extended this brand. So is social media where you still tell people like, this is where we live? Or is there an evolution of all of this content now that you guys are really focused on driving people to watch? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I think, I think everything that you just said is right, Rich. I think one of the core tenets of what we've done is meet the audience where they are, right? Um, you know, to, to have an entire sea change as to how, you know, this generation is consuming things. If we're trying to change that and not fit in with it, um, you're trying to do something that's that's kind of inorganic. So, you know, that, that's why it's important to us that we're gigantic on every single platform. We're the biggest account on TikTok. We're gigantic on Snapchat, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, where, where, wherever this generation is, um, we're programming for them in, in a meaningful way. Um, you know, and then, then, then there's other layers. You know, I, I'm sure in this conversation, we'll, we'll talk about Overtime Elite, but the genesis of that idea came from an in real life event that we ran that, that you guys know about the overtime takeover. Obviously we, we have, we have our app, which is, uh, which has been a really, really strong, strong point of distribution for us over the past six months or so. So it's, it's leveraging, you know, the, the social platforms for sure, but it, it's, it's also not limited to that at all. Yeah. I'm not, I, I think people get very stressed about the idea that, you know, you're supposed to have your own website and that's where everything is and you can't distribute socially. I don't know, where do you watch Friends? I don't know, Friends was on NBC, I think, but it wasn't on Netflix and now it's not on Netflix, it's on someone else. Nobody's freaking out about that. You wanna watch Friends, you figure out where the fuck to watch Friends. Like, that's the end of that. And so I think about, here's a phone, it's in the pocket of 100 million people, what's on their home screen? Like not what's on the screen, seven screens back with their banking app, what's on the home screen. That's where I want to be on those things. And if we're there, it's less about them figuring out where to watch us. And it's more that they discover us. You know, it's why outdoor advertising works. It's like you discover it as you're walking down the street. And, and similarly, you know, if there's billions of people on a YouTube, Instagram, Snap, TikTok, Twitter, like we want to be in front of them and be discovered. And overall, you know, when we talk about what are we trying to build, I call it a platform, right? Like, so all those people take away, you know, a knowledge of what overtime is. Some of them love overtime. Some of those ones are like crazy deep about overtime. They'll buy a sweatshirt. There's a funnel, right? Some people are super engaged with what you do. Some people are mild fans. 
But as if you've gotten in front of them and they've discovered you, now you can put out your own app if you want. Doesn't mean you're going to stop publishing videos on a platform. Now you can do your own event. It gives you the ability to build a platform. And if that's where you stop, then you are more limited. But as you push into the real world, things you wear, things you see, you know, and and apps and everything else like that, I think it's great. We made an app in the very beginning. And it was really hard to market. And everyone's like, you're the app guy. You got a quarter of a billion dollars. Just go sprinkle some of that app bullshit that you do and everyone will download it. And I was like, it's not that easy. And I, I couldn't do it. But now four and a half years into it, when we have 50 million followers, yeah, I can make an app because I got somebody who's going to listen to what we're talking about. So, you know, and, and that app is just part of the ecosystem. The platforms have been great. We have a great relationship with all the folks who work there. And those are the NBC, ABC, and CBS of my growing up. I couldn't tell you what channel I watched Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali fight on, but I watched it in the 70s. And, and, and that's the same for us. Yeah, but to, to your point about that, like friends had to be friends for people to care, for them, for people to just gravitate to wherever they are. So to your point... Your content is so great and you've built it up on multiple platforms that now you have the opportunity to take it to an app. Right. And so, But yeah. also NBC had to, if that's where it was, advertise the heck out of Friends. They, they had to give it the prime eight o'clock slot on whatever the prime night was, right? Like they couldn't have put just Friends on a website somewhere and expected people to find it. And it was so fun that they watched it the same way that like, if we get more engagement on an Instagram, more people see our stuff. So there's a relationship between the content and the platform that's always variable. None of that stuff exists without that. Even your movie theater, even the poster outside of the movie theater, is a, they're all forms of marketing that aggregate you there. And I could make movies, but I don't own any of the theaters. I don't make any money from the popcorn, but nobody complains about that. It's just they're all variations of the same thing in some ways. You know, um, Speaking of that, like another form of advertising that doesn't work for every company, but I was talking to G about earlier and Zach, you mentioned earlier, which has worked for you guys flawlessly. Um, and I think when I look at like the landscape of media companies that are doing this, I think LeBron and Mav do it very well and you guys do it well in a different way, which is the merchandise and how that's become such a big part of your business. And that can really be corny. You know, it, it really can be corny when people do it. It's cool if you do it right, you send it to someone, but it's corny when they try to sustain it as a brand when it's not, when it's just swag, right? You're giving it away. In this case, though, you guys have created an apparel brand. So you know, how did that kind of turn into that? Or is it like your example of just like it started as maybe what I said, you know, and then has pivoted into more of a real revenue stream? Well, I'd say unlike everyone else who's kind of copied us and tried to introduce apparel onto their media channels, um, don't give me that look, Rich. Uh, we, you know, from day one, I, I knew and Zach knew it was something that we wanted to do. Um, and it's hard, you know, you think about social platforms that you use when they add new formats, like they've never done video and then they add video or anything else. It's really hard. Like I love Twitter, but Twitter's always going to be, you know, 140 or 280 characters and all those other things are great, but you know something at the core for what it is. So if we didn't think about apparel from day one, it'd be really, really hard to do. And I think what most people don't know is that for the entire first year of our existence, we refused to sell anything. 
we made apparel only for the athletes and we gave it to them. We, we kind of had an, a piece of accidental luck, which was that we made these like tri-blend shirts that were really soft. And so people liked to wear them after they played and they weren't performance and they weren't like bulky tees. Um, and so people like them. And sometimes like I'll see like an NBA athlete who still has, you know, a t-shirt that we gave them five years ago with an old logo on it. And it's probably because it was soft and it was comfortable. That was a complete accident. Like I don't, I didn't even know what tri-blend meant, but like it turned out that way. And we gave a lot of them away. And then about six to eight months into it, all the all of our fans started seeing all these players wear the shirt and they were like, oh, how do I get one of those? Because the only people who got to wear it, it's like it's like having a ring, right, for winning the Super Bowl. It's like, you know, I, I want to be in that club. And we were like, sorry, they're not for sale. And, you know, I, I'd say that that was like, that was intentional, but I don't think that we fully understood how impactful it would be. And so, and it kept going on and going on and more people wanted to, get it and then they borrow it from another player and they'd wear it as if for time had given it to them and at that point probably a year in we really started making a small number of things and putting them out but i think without that one year of people seeing it on their players on their the players they liked and what it kind of symbolized and without having integrated it into our dna so that if you were a producer on an overtime thing you never went to a shoot without five t-shirts in your backpack without any of that I don't, I don't think it would have been as successful as it was now. And, if, and then kind of moving from that. And at that time, I'd say we were in the merch business, right? And I say now we're in the apparel business or in the lifestyle business. People are like, oh, I see your merch everywhere. Merch is like when you fucking go to a conference and they give you a pen and a mug. Like, I'm not trying to be in the mug business or the merch business. I'm trying to be in the apparel business. And I think as we kind of made that pivot, the second core insight was thinking about, you know, I think a lot about vans, right? Like I have van sneakers, but I don't skateboard. But the van's aesthetic is very skateboard. I remember going to my first van store in Santa Monica and they had a skate ramp in the back. And I was like, that is so sick. And so I was like, how does basketball become like skateboarding is for these other companies where you don't have to play to appreciate it, but it becomes part of the edgy aesthetic. I bet you made a mug before. I guarantee you made an overtime mug. Uh, we 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 ne we never made an o overtime mug before. But if you want, <laughs> that, that, that's, a, that, that's a good idea. That could be my next birthday present for old man Dan. Totally, I could take my Metamucil in the overtime mug. Um, so it's a just it's intentionality, and you have to know where you want to go. It's actually what I said at the beginning, right? It's like you have to know what the bigger vision is. You just modify the tactics along the way. And I think the last thing I'd say is until we, you know, brought on Tyler, who had spent 10 years at Adidas, and, and we wouldn't have been ready for somebody with that level of experience. But when we were ready, and it's the same thing with Mark and content and Rich and sales, when you get to that point where you're not a bunch of guys kind of trying to do something in a room that's out of your area of expertise, you're at the right time to bring in experience, then boom, you really just kind of go up from there. Yeah. I, I completely relate to that. Are you, can you tell me how much in sales you do as a merchandise company, as a, oh my God, as an apparel company? Uh, we don't do any in merch, um, zero. But uh, aside from that mug, uh, in apparel, we, we, do, we do in the millions of dollars. 
not more than 10, but more than one, somewhere in between there, but, but significant. And for us, it, it's, it's great because anyone who buys it, you know, is able to also share their love for the brand with other people. And also it's a way we directly communicate with our customers. We have 150,000 phone numbers of people who have opted in to receive text messages from us to get updates about when we're dropping new stuff. And that, that becomes, you know, a, a powerful direct form of communication with the audience. That's amazing, man. That's very cool. So what's the future? And before we get to the kind of your big announcement that you had last week, what is the future for you guys? Like as you start the vision, and I know the vision, like you said, never changes, you know, the, the persistence of the vision can't change, but you've pivoted along the way. But as it gets to the size it's at, and as you add these major layers of your company, the idea of knowing like where this can be, is this a public company? Is this a company that some major sports network's gonna buy? Or is Overtime going to become our major sports network? You know, Is that actually still the goal of being the biggest sports network in the world? I would say, I mean, those are two different companies questions like from an investor perspective what's your exit i've sold two companies and i can tell you that i haven't sold any companies two other people bought them i was selling from day one but it didn't matter for five years until someone woke up and decided they wanted to buy i think i learned a long time ago that you just really figure out what your niche is and if something happens, it's often out of your control. Like when people say to me, I'm gonna go hire a banker to try to sell the company. I'm like, when people wanna buy the company, they're gonna to wanna to buy the company. Like that banker isn't gonna do anything for you. So I think for us, it's just really understanding where we can own value in the ecosystem. And it is global in nature. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I like to say that uh, you know, in a, in a traditional business or maybe even in a sports business, you create some business and then somebody says, oh, we got to launch a bunch of social channels to support the business, right? We actually launch a bunch of social channels first, and then we're going in the opposite direction as we build out all of these other parts of the business. Yeah, I mean, I, I would add to that, that to your point, Rich, like the, the vision was always to create this brand and this community around, you know, Gen Z and millennials around sports. And I think, that, that that gives us a lot of license to do a lot of things with it, whether that is, you know, things in real life, products. Um, there, there's so many different things that we can now provide to this audience and community of almost 50 million people and continuing to grow, whether that's and growing that globally, uh, which you've been able to do over the past couple of years, you know, different sports um, and, and different ways to monetize. So. Uh, that, that, that's the part that's really exciting to Dan's point. It's like, we, we built, we built the social channels, we built the distribution. It's now like, what else can, can we put into that funnel? And, you know, and obviously our announcement last week with Overtime Elite is just another large thing that we can put through that funnel. So, uh, Overtime Elite it is then you teased it up and it is uh, something that everybody within the basketball community I can attest to is speaking about. I've obviously been hip to this and talking to you guys throughout. And, um, and I think it was incredible to hear Adam Silver, obviously, the day before the All-Star game, give it a, uh, a cosign. You know, as much as a, he could cosign that, he cosigned it. And listen, man, I, I, I'm amazed at what you guys have already done. 
it's really shown me more so than even overtime. Like I'm going to talk about this in another time in my life where I like to highlight entrepreneurs, but at this point, maybe I'll be like speaking at a school somewhere and I'll talk to this moment where like you guys really have built this incredible network for you, Dan, you, you know, you have a family, you've sold companies, Zach, there's probably a million things that, you know, as you look later in your life that you want to do that we're starting to become attainable, like in your thoughts, right? Like the moment in your thoughts where you're like, I could do that actually now. Right. And you see over time. And like you said, there is no exit that you are going to say here, but listen, man, everybody understands that everything doesn't last forever. Right. And that there is going to be a point where overtime is very lucrative in some form for a lot of people in your company. I'm saying that. You don't have to say it. But then you go and you take on this insane challenge and one that like on paper, someone may not have said, these are the two guys that are going to do this. Um, tell me a little bit about when this overtime elite idea came about. And you know what? Even before that, I'm going to do the audience a favor and and Gianni a favor is I think sometimes it's easier when a layman communicates like how they hear it and what it is. And then I want you guys to kind of tell me if I'm right and then correct it. And then lastly, why and how it came about. So overtime elite is going to be an alternative now for kids that are eyeing professional basketball that want to become professionals now and have basketball the main focus of their life in a new and innovative way in their junior and senior year they will join this overtime elite there will be multiple teams in these different age groups and they will commit to this one location they will train with nba trainers they will study with the top academic advisors they will have peers of theirs who understand and can relate to what they're going through. They'll learn all of the ancillary things that are needed on this journey, financial literacy, et cetera. And they'll compete against junior international teams, high school teams that allow themselves to compete with you or academies, et cetera. And then you'll pay them a salary of a hundred thousand dollars a year. You'll give them benefits. Um, you'll allow them the opportunity to monetize themselves in other ways potentially you'll help in that and they'll play in this for two years and then afterwards if they decide not to play pro ball which is something I always struggled with right like no one committing to those two years will accept that at that point but if they did you guys would pay for their entire college experience and if not they will then go on to play professional basketball but they have forfeited the chance to play college ball and they forfeit the chance immediately to go back to play high school basketball. They've committed to this for two years. When you graduate, you get a high school diploma, and then you go on to play professional basketball. Did I nail it, guys? And if not, correct it, and then walk me through why. <laughs> you did a really, really good job. Um, you know, I was kind of waiting for you to, to miss a detail here or there, and obviously there, there are a ton more details, but at the high level, you nailed it because really at the end of the day, there's kind of three core principles to this and you nailed them all. One is the basketball development, uh, you know, and, and you referenced NBA, NBA trainers. Certainly that's a part of it, but it's also the sports scientists. It's a sports psychology. It's everything that goes into becoming a, an NBA player. And 
one of the things that's been really fun is, you know, we brought on a guy named Brandon Williams, who was an assistant GM in the league, played in the league. And what he talks about all the time, it's not just getting that first NBA contract. It's the longevity of your career. Now, of course, if you're someone like a, a KD, like you're bound to have a long career because you're just that talented. But for a lot of guys that enter the league, I mean, the average span in the NBA is four years, right? And there's a big difference between, you know, playing on a rookie contract for four years and playing the league for 10 or 15 years what that means for you financially and your brand and all of that. So a lot of this has to do with you know, setting up guys for a really long NBA career, the education front. I'm really glad that, that you referenced that as part of the story, but it's a huge component of it. I mean, we're really investing against that four to one teacher to student ratio. And as you mentioned, the financial literacy, mental health conversation, so, social justice conversation, all those things I think are so critical. And then, yeah, I'm glad that you didn't just touch on the six figure salary, but the ability to monetize them name, image, and likeness, the college scholarship as well, um, the access to benefits and, and disability insurance. You know, unfortunately, if an athlete right now is 16 years old and their family is living in poverty and they suffer a career ending injury tomorrow, that's it. Like no, no, no one is looking out for them. No one is going to, is going to write them a check. This allows them to make money on the spot, but also if something happens, you know, we're facilitating, facilitating disability insurance. And so it's really that well-rounded model. And we didn't come up with these three pillars. These three pillars were from learning from the, the, the players and their parents themselves and asking them like, what, what's, what's broken in this ecosystem. And so that, that's one of the things that, that I'm really, uh, that I think is important and I'm proud of is that like, you know, pe people, you know, we, we did a bunch of press last week, as you know, and people kept asking, like, what was that seminal moment? When, when, when did you or Dan, like, have this idea and you knew you were going to do it? And it was that moment doesn't exist because it's not really so much our idea, more like feedback from the marketplace. Like, we've been understanding that, this, that there, there is a time for this. I remember, Rich, the first time we told Kevin about this, he was like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, I've been waiting for something like this to come around. And most people in the basketball ecosystem that we've told this idea to and then and now reacting to the press, that's what they say. It's like, it's about time. It, you know, ch change is needed. The athletes deserve to be compensated. And look, OTE is not for every single athlete, but for the elite of the elite, a, a select few, we, we think it's a super compelling path for them. And then obviously an evolution of our business as well. I also want to give you guys credit because in a way, it's, you know, o OTE is really about challenging assumptions. You know, I even say like, the NCA is the one taking eligibility away. We're not taking eligibility away. They could decide tomorrow that everyone who plays an OTE can play in college. That That's on their decision. But I think that, you know, somebody who's come in to a part of the basketball ecosystem as an outsider and says, wow, there are all these assumptions. Why does it have to be that way? And I remember when Zach and I had a call with you and KD and we said, we're going to put money away for college for them. And I think Kevin said, well, what if they don't want to go to college? What if they want an internship or a job? And I was like, oh shit, I think I'm like Mr. Free of Assumptions here and I'm already making an assumption that that's the only path there. And even though that was a small point, it just reminded me so much that like, you can't make any assumptions about people's paths and journey and the way it has to be. Um, and I think that that's the kind of mindset that it takes to figure out something like this uh, to some extent. Um, it, it's all the people who are telling you what the assumptions are and then all the people who are telling you what their problems are and then you think about how to solve them and at every level there's somebody else saying, well, why do you assume that that's the path? Why do you assume that that's a path? And you think, well, because I went on that path or Zach went on that path or you went on that path and you're like, oh shit, that, that doesn't have to be the path. And I think that that 
that to me makes it really, it's risky, but it's really interesting and it's exciting. And as much as I want it to be like a huge business for us and for you guys as investors and partners and everyone else like that, I hope that it can have a larger area of change. I mean, we've been talking about taking some of the academic pieces that we're trying to do and open source them so any teacher anywhere can use our financial literacy curriculum and, and do that. So you can have an effect where we are, but you can have a bigger effect as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny, you said the thing about assumptions, and that's kind of like what I was alluding to earlier about the orbit, right? And that social media can force you to assume something or allow you to believe that the only thing you're seeing is fact. And one thing you can do as a founder or anybody working in a, within a team is like, if everyone around you looks like you, you're not doing it right, right? If everybody around you lives in the same place you live, you're not doing it right. And you know, I think it's very clear within our team um, that I've tried to do that. You know, the, the closeness Gianni and I have, the reason we do his pod together is because of that. Um, and I, and I, I read Maverick in LeBron's article today in Fast Company. And, you know, I was really impressed to hear like how far reach they have in terms of the people that work there. Because I do think as you're building these companies that are living in social media and because of what we said, being able to get that kind of point of view from so many people is imperative and to know that what you're thinking is not right. And, you know, one of the things I said to you guys was the obvious was just like two guys, just like two white guys from New York, like a star starting this league. And I could say that to you, right? Because I understand like your guys' passion for wanting to do this is so real. I do, because I feel that same feeling. But what would somebody say, right? Instead of me questioning it, because I have no more questions. I'm all the way bought in. I believe in you too. KD and I are committed to doing our part to help you make this work. But what would someone say is the reason why this wouldn't work? Or Dan or Zach, have you thought about this or no way this can work? Well, I, before Zach answers that, uh, I'm from Philly originally. So, um, you know. <laughs> All right, bro. But when you, know you start it. Come on, Rich. You know that from my sports fandom. I do. But um, I do know that. And I hate that about you. That's the only thing I hate about you. But. <laughs> I also think I, you're still, about I'll still listen to all those giants you guys put on the podcast. Oh man, they're um, coming. But listen, one more thing. You're a New Yorker now, bro. Come on. You're a yeah, Brooklyn. I, I, you're I like lived a in Brooklyn for 30 years. Yeah. Um, and, and the one thing I would say on that side is, yeah, like, you know, I'm white, I'm old. I'm an, you know, I'm an outsider. I didn't grow up hooping in the same way. Um, but in the in a sense, like it's really it's not about me. Like you know what I can do is I can build an amazing platform along with Zach, and on that platform we can attract all kinds of people. You know, Brandon who's doing the basketball operations, Aaron who spent twenty two years at the league, and so for me, I think about like what can I do to build that platform. I even talked about that on the apparel side, right? I'm not designing the T-shirts. So when you can build that platform, you can empower so many different creative people who are in world, out of world, who represent different viewpoints than you are, you know, come from different backgrounds. And I think that's that's the part that's most exciting. I'm not sitting there, you know, drafting the players and designing the training and everything else like that. I'm sitting there thinking about who are the most amazing people in the world who are completely different people than I am or in Zach is, and how do we get them to be part of our team and to drive this forward? No, I, I was just going to say, I think that, you know, one of the things that I think is not necessarily being talked about sort of sort of in, in the press and, and generally is like 
this is not just a journey for the athlete, it's for the family, right? And that's one of the things that we're really focused on. How do we make this the right decision for the entire family and the entire group around the athlete? Because whether you're 16 or you're 21, like it's also about the people around you. And so that's an aspect of this that is not lost on us at all. What have the families and the kids said so far that you've spoke to? Um, so we have to be, uh, we're very diligent about, you know, sort of eligibility rules. And while the players are still focused on their high school season, uh, we've been careful not to have any recruiting conversations. But what I will say is that, you know, kind of, as I said earlier, like the concept was based off of feedback that we got from athletes and parents. Um, so we, we know that they're like, I mean, we, we've gotten some outreach post, post the launch, uh, a ton. Uh, and we know that they're really excited. I'll tell you guys something funny. So one thing that I really pride myself on is how many goddamn people I know and the amount of calls and emails that I've gotten of people recommending players that they think can play in this. And the, some of the people like someone I sent you today, their, their pipeline is real, right? So this is on the record. Now, when you two get texts from me about who I think should be in it, it's passing a very tight filter with Kevin and I, but I got one the other day when I was like, bro, your kid cannot hoop. Come on, man. Like I saw, I'm not even calling them. Like, I think you might've misread the press release. This is not the league for your son. Okay. He could play with me in the summer if he wants, <laughs> but this is not the league for him. Um, what happens though, if this fails and I ask that as your friend, only because what you've built in overtime is so incredibly special. And companies can take a loss within their ecosystem. But this is a big undertaking and a big risk, right? If this fails, does it tarnish the overtime brand? Is that a concern? And honestly, guys, I don't think it's going to fail. But I know that the two of you have to think about these things as you talk to your investors, as you raise more money for this league. Um, what is your feelings and concerns on that? Yeah, so look, I, I think obviously this is a, a gigantic move for our company, but it's, it's, a, it's also a gigantic move for the athletes themselves. Um, and that's why it's not exactly the question you asked, but I think it's important to say that we're very well capitalized to do this and we're guaranteeing this program for, for athletes. Like this is not gonna, the rug is not gonna be pulled out from underneath them. We're capitalized to be able to guarantee these salaries, to be able to guarantee the college scholarships, to be able to guarantee the resources around them because you know we, we have a moral obligation to do that for the athletes and their families because they're, they're taking a major step. So that, that's, I think the first thing. In terms of how it, how it impacts over time, I agree with you, we're, we're not gonna fail. Um, but you know, if, if it doesn't go exactly according to plan, um, you know, what's been exciting for me is to see in the past week just how much the basketball community supports us. Um, and at a minimum, we're gonna be able to provide an amazing experience for 30 athletes for a couple of years, at a minimum, right? If the business aspect of this doesn't work out and it doesn't take off in the way that we thought it would, uh, which again, I can't see happening, man, our one day event did 150 million video views. There's just no way this isn't gonna explode all over. Uh, but if that happens, like our, our, our the overtime brand is insanely strong uh, and it's just going to be even stronger in a couple of years. And I think that the, the basketball community in particular, I think once they see how we're putting on for these athletes, they're just going to respect us at an even deeper level. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I do think your league is strong enough. And I think that we're in a time where like the purpose of this is so great that if it doesn't work, 
it was part of the mission. You know, you guys are trying to put these kids in position. And you know, I think that's the success is that you guys are doing it. Um, so we named this office, this podcast out of office, right? It's supposed to reflect real life. And when you go to get work drinks, and you get to get work dinner. Sometimes someone gets a call at dinner and they run out on the call. I don't like it when they do it to me, but it happened. So your partner, Dan Porter, got a call from an agent, gave us the I got to go sign the agent's calling. And yes, buddy, he's got to deal with it on the pod because it happened in real time. But because of that, I'm going to let you go, Zach. And I know you got a call too. And this is exactly what G and I deal with every week with our pod. We, we put it in the schedule. And I think that's the cool part of these conversations. It really feels like we're on a, a Zoom talking work. And um, you know, I actually really feel like I learned something more about kind of this new phase in your guys' career. And I'm excited about it. And um, I'm going to let you go. Please tell Dan I forgive him. But I'm definitely going to get him back. All right, my man? Awesome. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, G. Really appreciate you guys. So, gee, man, first time man. we've ever uh, had somebody leave us mid-interview, bro. I know, right? So they had, they dropped a lot of gems, though. They did drop gems, and you know our uh, our producer and our our man fifty grand Amani knows, and Terrence, our other producer and man fifty grand know that when the first time we Chris Bosch didn't show up on our pod, and I bet I still to this day don't even know if he knew that he was getting on our pod. We called everybody that left or didn't show getting boshed, right? So yep. are we are we going to call this getting boshed, or is this like a new category? This is some new. This is something new. This is this is new, oh, right? This is an overtime experience. Yeah, well, you know this what? The we OTE. Did, yeah, but you know what? We didn't go to overtime in this one. He left. He got out of there in the middle of the fourth quarter. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, I'll tell you one thing though, man. If I'm a junior, senior in high school today, uh, I like the sounds of that. I really do. I think this thing has real legs. I think their education model is strong. I think just their mindset, you know what I mean? And I know they're doing it for the right reasons. And I think when you're doing something for the right reasons, like we said at the end, if it fails, I still think the purpose was right. Facts. And this is a moment for you know, juniors and seniors to get really realistic with themselves. If you don't feel like you're a D1 athlete, but you still want to be in sports, this might be the way for you. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, that's a really good point because there are people that may not fit any of the box, don't want to go to college. They can hoop, but like, shit, like I thought I was really good, fizzled out my junior year a bit. But these guys are committed to putting you in college, or if you don't want to go to college, then you take these kind of resources and start to your journey in the sports business. And I think also maybe earlier than like how far it goes in some of these kids' lives is you get a real reality check, you know, like we're going to be playing hopefully against some of the best players in the world. And maybe you decide I'm going to go to college. You know what? Like I just got a reality check in front of some of these kids that I'm playing with and I'm going to go to college. Um, but yeah, man, really cool time. Let's uh, let's get back to business this was a fun podcast. Appreciate everybody for listening, man. I really do. I hope everybody listened. I hope everybody subscribes. Keep subscribing. Go back and listen to the old joints. We got some gems ourselves, Gianni. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to everybody next week. All right. Peace. Peace, everyone.